Hello, welcome to another episode of Eureka Nerd. I'm Will, Blanket Snail. And I'm Leah, Carnivorous Plant Monster. And we come to you at the end of... Oh boy, what a week. <laughs> it, it really has been. Um, it's been a whole seven days. America made some choices. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Well, let's just cut right to the quick and open up with our first story. The top 10 fears of 2016, sourced from Chapman University, a survey of American fears. This is the third year of this annual survey, and its results may have some answers for why the US voted the way it did. They really paint a picture. I mean, it's basically the entire film history of Mark Wahlberg, if you work your way down the list. Because top of the list, the number one fear in America, with 60.6%, is corruption of government officials. Then on to, at 41%, terrorist attack on nation. Not to be confused with number four, victim of terrorism, which is at least, I mean, three films that have come out this year that I can think of. Strangely, number three, 39.9%, is inadequate funds for the future. Going down the list, the fifth most frightening thing to Americans, apparently, is gun control. As in having it rather than not having it, which I find a lot more alarming. Yeah, gun uncontrol is probably scarier to me. A lot of people are very, very attached to their guns. Presumably that might overlap somewhat with the 38.1% who are scared of loved ones dying. Which links with number nine on the list, loved ones becoming seriously ill. Although number ten is the Affordable Health Care Act slash Obamacare. I don't understand what's frightening about being able to go to a hospital and get treatment. Maybe it's related to number one, this perceived fear of corruption. You think that if people know all your medical records and you're paying tax and like you're going to state hospitals, that there's going to be some guy getting rich off it already. Unlike all those completely not-for-profit private health companies. Yeah, I, I don't get it at all. There's... I cannot relate to being frightened of being able to get healthcare. I can't relate to being frightened of not having to choose which finger to get reattached if I'm involved in an industrial accident. Well, at least here in England we have the NHS. This is also the same week that £700 million worth of contract have been sold off to Virgin Medical Company. Looking at you, corruption of government officials and inadequate funds for the future. But yes, there is quite a lot of overlap in the fears on this top 10 list. Things that that guy was running on. So by positioning himself as an outsider, he's appealing to people who are frightened of government corruption. He's going to make all the terrorism go away. By banning everyone. Apparently that whole section of domestic terrorism is not a thing anymore. Uh, not having enough money for the future, you can trust him. He's got money, about a third of what he actually claims, and he would have more if he hadn't done any business whatsoever in the intervening 50 years. But... I mean, unfortunately, the people who are frightened of people they love dying or economic collapse may be shit out of luck, but it remains to be seen. Let's have a quick quote from Christopher Bader, who is a professor of sociology at Chapman University who says that people often fear what they cannot control, and we find continued evidence for that in our top fears. You know what else you can't control? Spiders. But they are surprisingly not in the top ten. 
I mean, they're looking at a slightly different set of fears, I think, than uh, common phobias. Because if you were looking at the most common phobias in the US, I'm pretty sure spiders would be right up there. The survey this year introduced questions asking about conspiracy theories. If you believe in something, you can very easily be scared of it. Especially if it's something that's not real. We're looking at, you know, conspiracy surrounding the JFK assassination, which ties into police corruption. We're looking at aliens. Who knows what they want? Their answers showed that more than half of Americans believe the government is hiding information about the 9-11 attacks and the assassination of JFK. A quarter of Americans believe there's something suspicious about the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, which is interesting because he was old and sick, so... He was real old. People die, guys. Have you not seen fears number five and seven? But yes, they found really good evidence that the United States is a society that has a lot of belief in conspiracies, including... The North Dakota crash. And indeed, they found that nearly a third of their respondents, this is a survey of more than 1,500 people, and nearly a third of those people believe the government is concealing information about the North Dakota crash. A theory that we asked about, and to our knowledge, made up, Dr. Bader continues. I mean, you know, if it's if it's got a name, they're probably hiding something about it, right? The Roswell incident, the North Dakota crash, the Ally McBeal show. Anything with a name has power. Exactly. You know what else is powerful? Jet engines. <laughs> In a quick pivot, we're going to steer away from global politics and the oncoming doom that awaits us all over the next four years and focus on something a little bit more cheerful. Singing mice. Well, there's, there's singing, and then there is whistling like a jet engine. I mean, it's, it's a song, it's just... An ultrasonic whistle. Using ultra-high-speed video of 100,000 frames per second, the researchers who've come up with this result, who are working at uh, the University of Southern Denmark, showed that instead of using vibrating vocal folds in their larynx to make these ultrasonic sounds, they use a jet of air from their windpipe to produce these ultrasonic whistles. And Dr. Anna Rank, who is co-author and lead investigator at the Aeroacoustics Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, says that this mechanism is known only to produce sound in supersonic flow applications such as vertical takeoff and landing with jet engines, or high-speed subsonic flows such as jets for rapid cooling of electrical components, which makes these mice sound just really cool. Cutting-edge mice. And they think it's entirely possible that other species of rodents use this technique to make some of their sounds so rats also use ultrasonic sounds to communicate amongst one another bats might use this technique for their ultrasound and they're hoping that this research has some application for uh, human speech and those who have trouble with processing human speech for example any one of the developmental disorders which hampers language learning but unless we can start developing jet engines in our necks as well i'm always going to be a little bit jealous of mice from now on And not just because they're small and fluffy and get to eat the peanut butter. I eat plenty of peanut butter. You do eat plenty of peanut butter. (laughs) Speaking of which, peanut butter is a top flavouring at the moment, it seems. You can get it in all kinds of things because it's spouses being, you know, a high protein. For those of you out there listening to this who are considering going on a high protein diet as part of your weight loss program, I maybe 
take a step back and listen to this new study from the Washington University School of Medicine in which high-protein diet actually slows down the metabolic benefits that you'd expect with a kind of diet-based weight loss program. Now, this is looking specifically at um, obese and postmenopausal women who are at risk of diabetes. These are all people who've presented with reduced insulin sensitivity already, which is a, a symptom of pre-diabetic conditions. So that's why they've been put on this weight loss program is because it is, you know, their diet or possibly just their size is impacting their health. These people were placed into three groups over 28 weeks. We have the control, women who are asked to maintain weight, another group of women who ate a weight loss diet, and a third who were on the same diet but with more protein. This is the difference of 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight to 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, which is a difference of 65 grams of protein a day to 100 grams of protein a day for a 180-pound woman. Now, they've, it's a very small study. It's only 34 women. And they haven't actually mentioned what they think the cause of the insulin sensitivity is because, to my understanding, sometimes it's that as you're sort of snacking or grazing throughout the day, your blood sugar's rocking up and down and you know, insulin's getting released to deal with that. And so you develop an insensitivity that, to that because you're being exposed to it more often. And sometimes it's literally just that you are bigger than your pancreas can provide for. And they haven't mentioned that because you'd expect if it is just a, a volume thing, it wouldn't make a difference what you were eating as long as you were getting smaller. But quoting from lead investigator Bettina Mittendorfer, when you lose weight, about two-thirds of it tends to be fat tissue, the other third is lean tissue. Changing protein content has very large effects, and it's not that the benefits of weight loss were diminished, metabolically speaking, but that they were completely abolished in women who consumed high-protein diets, even though they lost the same substantial amounts of weight as women who ate the diet that was lower in protein. I don't know why this is the result that they have, and Mittendorfer does plan to continue researching, investigate it with larger sample sizes, seeing if the same effects happen with male subjects. It could just be that the protein is being metabolized faster because it's more readily available, so if you're using that as an energy source instead of fat, then the fat doesn't get used. But for those of you who are in your uh, cutting phase and not the bulking phase of your journey into musculature, then maybe this will change the way you do your diet too, for all of our bodybuilder listeners out there. Our next story is one of the ones we've picked because the headline really leaps out at you, and that is... Snotty Gobble could be good weed controller. There's no part of that sentence that doesn't make me smile. This is research from the University of Adelaide, which is actually quite serious. I remember from our last podcast the idea of biocontainment, keeping what lives within Australia within Australia for the benefit of the world. Or rather, keeping what doesn't live in Australia from getting into Australia and ruining what lives in Australia. And this is on a similar theme, only this time it's dealing with species that have already invaded. So looking in southeastern Australia, where the native vine, Cassitha pubescens, better known as Snotty Gobble, is able to kill invasive species such as gorse, blackberry and scotch broom, but isn't doing anything to damage any of the native shrubbery. This is very significant because if you've done 
any sort of gardening or weeding in Britain, in Northern Europe, where, you know, you're dealing with a, a plot that's been derelict for a while. Gorse and brambles and broom are really difficult to get rid of. They are very, very hardy. In an environment like Australia, where the climate is nicer and there aren't any natural controls on them, I can imagine them being a real issue. What really gets to me is the method by which Snotty Gobble manages to do its dirty business. Attaching to host plants via suckers, latching on and sucking out the water and nutrients so they can grow at the expense of the plants they infect, according to Robert Sirocco, a recent PhD graduate from the university's School of Biological Science. It's a very promising native biocontrol agent. And in my head, it's like a leech plus a sticky bud. Just gets on you and... Keep that snotty gobble away from me. I'm imagining suckers more like strawberry suckers. It just sort of stretches out runners. And wherever they hit the ground, they root. Moving away from plants and into a virus carrying the DNA of black widow spider toxin. And if that isn't the most metal thing I've ever heard, I don't know what is. This virus is a bacteriophage which attacks a bacterial parasite called Wolbachia that does infect black widow spiders. Now, the last I heard of Wolbachia, they were being used as a plot device in Metal Gear Solid V Phantom Pain, but that was some weird, crazy sci-fi stuff involving zombies and uh, speech loss. But what these are are bacteriophages, the kind of virus that infects a bacteria and uses their means of cell division to propagate DNA to infect more bacteria in the same way that those bacteria would then infect anything else. When they have replicated their DNA within the host bacterial cell enough, they wrap themselves in fragments of the membrane of that bacteria. And then when they want to get that membrane off them, the way that they punch their way out of this bacterial membrane envelope they're in to disrupt the cell membrane is the toxin. So you've shrouded yourself in this cell membrane and then you just erupt outwards full of spider venom and viruses and apparently... It's actually good for us? Yes, the knock-on effect of this might help us with efforts that are already being made to use the Wolbachia bacteria to fight dengue fever and Zika virus. Using some of this virus's techniques, we'll be more able to genetically engineer the bacteria, which already prevent the viruses that cause dengue fever and Zika virus from reproducing in the Aedes aegypti mosquitoes that spread them, which could seriously hamper or indeed entirely stop the spread of these viruses. And they do comment at the end that apparently Bordenstein has been studying this bacteriophage for 15 years just because he was curious about how it survives uh, in a bacteria that has such a small genome. At the time, some of my colleagues asked why I was studying such an obscure subject, he recalls. The answer is because it's metal as hell and could save the world. This is one of the things about science, is you investigate things because you're curious about it and find things out, and then someone at some point will find a way that that's useful. This is why the Ig Nobel Awards exist, because quite often this apparently silly research has got great applications further down the line. I think we mentioned... In that episode, nobody knew what to do with lasers when they invented them, and now they're in everything. Valcro comes from space. Well, NASA, but... 
I just think it's interesting how they really buried the lead in this. That sure, a bacteriophage carrying the Black Widow spider toxin is really cool it's and all. Really cool. But that it could also prevent malaria and dengue fever and the Zika virus being transmitted by mosquitoes. That is really cool. That is top cool. Like you play that trump card and you win the cool. It's like, hey, what's science done this year? Oh, oh, you know that virus that really, really frightened people when they were going to the Olympics in Rio? We might have found a way to fuck that shit up. With Black Widow Toxin. You're welcome. And now we move on to a story which is in the list entirely for Will's benefit because it is... Well, it's dear to my heart and the Milky Way's ancient heart. Yes, we are talking now about the terrifying void of space. And one of the slightly less voidy bits, i.e. the middle of our galaxy. Which you'd expect to be quite busy, being the middle of a galaxy. It's got, well, depends where you draw the line, but I'd say it's got most of the galaxy in it. But unfortunately, it's very hard to actually study it, because there's so much stuff in the way and already there that figuring out what is going on and how far away and how long ago that happened is it's, it poses a lot of problems. But discovery of RR Lyrae stars has helped astronomers figure out the difference between competing theories of how bulges in space form. As far as I can tell, they did know about the RR Lyrae stars before, but as they're frequently outshone by younger and brighter stars, this is the first time they've actually been able to find them towards the centre of the galaxy in order to use their unique properties to make measurements. Yes, and by studying how often they uh, fluoresce, how often they emit light brightening and dimming, which is the length of its cycle, then they can measure the brightness, and from the brightness they can work out, based on the speed of light being what it is, how far away it is and how long ago this happened. And just so you know, he's picked up the H.P. Lovecraft anthology again. Brace yourselves. Unfortunately, these excellent distance indicator stars are frequently outshone by younger, brighter stars, and in some regions they are hidden by dust. Therefore, locating RR Lyrae stars right in the extremely crowded heart of the Milky Way was not possible until the public EV survey was carried out using infrared light. Even so, the team described the task of locating the stars amongst a crowded throng of brighter stars as daunting. They had shape. For did not the star-fashioned image prove it? But that shape was not made of matter. When the stars were right, they could plunge from world to world through the sky. But when the stars were wrong, they could not live. But although they no longer lived, they would never really die. They all lay in stone houses in their great city of Relais preserved by the spells of mighty Cthulhu for glorious resurrection when the stars and earth might once be ready for them. Not only are these stars powerful evidence for an important theory of galactic evolution, they're also likely to be over 10 billion years old. The dim but dogged survivors of perhaps the oldest and most massive star cluster within the Milky Way galaxy. So in case you were wondering, space, still spooky. Spooky as all heck. You know what you need to lighten the mood? Boobs. Unfortunately, we're not going to support regular high street purveyors of boobs. 
because unfortunately, it seems that, as many people have thought for some time and that I didn't realise wasn't confirmed yet, Lad Mags making sexist jokes makes the sexist jokes themselves seem more normalised and less hostile. A collaborative team of leading social psychologists from the University of Surrey, Clark University, University of Ghent, and Middlesex University, London, investigated how magazines normalise sexism in actually three studies, all published together, in the psychology of men and masculinities. So supporters of these magazines usually say that, oh, well, you know, we all know the jokes are ironic, so it doesn't matter. A joke is never just a joke. It's always got ulterior motives, usually to make people like you. And there's joking to reinforce or attempt to change social status, whether it be yours or someone else's in the group. And in that ironic idea that, oh, it's just a joke, no one could take this at all seriously, there will always be someone in the room reading that, listening to it and going, yes, this is how I feel and this is right. And it reinforces that, that sense of rightness. Or there'll be someone there who isn't sure and they'll think, oh, no, this is this is fine, really, probably. I mean, it's all a joke, isn't it? So across these three studies, two of them in the UK, one in the US, we're looking at about 700 men. Most of them probably between 18 and 30. The age range used is different in each of the studies. And they all found pretty strong correlations between sexist behaviour and attitudes and consumption of lad smacks. And evidence that the context of of sexist comments, jokes and attitudes made a lot of difference to how it was perceived. Yes, the third study here, which I think is the most interesting one, is trying to identify a group of quotations that had appeared in lad mags and those which had been used by convicted rapists. And having failed to do this effectively, correctly identifying only half of the quotations, the men who had taken part in the sorting tasks viewed lad mags as less legitimate. Because if you can't tell them apart from the words of sexual assailants, then there's normalising behaviour and then there is outright enabling it. In the smaller UK study, participants were presented with a set of sexist jokes. Some of them were in context of a lance mag, some of them were not in that context. And particularly the young men who'd scored lower on measures they'd previously done of sexist attitudes found the jokes considerably less hostile when they were in the context of the lads mag. They didn't find them any more ironic in the context of the lads mag, but hearteningly they didn't find them funnier either. Just kind of more acceptable, which is really the worst thing. And the other study of the three was identifying the correlation between sexism and lad mag's consumption. If a man displays ambivalent sexism, which is to say a general disregard for sexist attitudes, he is more likely to buy lad mags than other men, but also not any more likely to like directly pay for sex or go to strip clubs. And Professor Pete Hegarty of the University of Surrey Department of Psychology says that sales of lad mags has declined significantly in recent years, with several ceasing publication, but lad culture and normalisation of sexism is still a major concern, particularly on university campuses and online. Of course, lots of magazines have closed down, but if you just search for lad online, oh, the lads have not gone anywhere. In context of lads mags apparently being particularly bad for normalising sexist attitudes, I would like to just add a quote from my mother when she found 
a copy of Zoo magazine in my brother's bedroom a few years ago. She went, oh my God, why don't they go buy some proper porn? He better not be reading this for the articles. So, moving on to a slightly more cheerful topic, albeit one which, again, how would they not work this out previously? Snow could reduce the need for air conditioning. From the University of British Columbia, Okanagan campus. And British Columbia gets quite a fair amount of snow. I mean, being in Canada, it's... Snowy. It's northern. Yeah, get some pretty arctic climbs. But, um, yeah, they've figured out that using snow cleared from winter roads could help reduce summer air conditioning belts. You just take all the snow and put it in the buildings and it keeps them cold later. Just store it nice and nice and insulated in, for example, the basement. And Yeah, snow is can, cold. You can direct the ventilation through your nice pile of snow and help keep the building cooler. I can just imagine a bunch of people looking out across a frost-laden morn going, oh, we can use this, eh? This will be handy come June. Moving away from the hard science of snow is cold, I want a bit more of a soft sociological aspect with the next story, but just as many sibilant S's, that Shakespeare has been found to help children with autism communicate. Now, I think it's not necessarily Shakespeare in itself, it's just that Shakespeare was used as a tool for the workshops. He's not returned from the grave to encourage mindfulness or anything. Well, and it's not particularly his work that has this effect. It's that, in this case, they are using Shakespeare, but it would probably work with theatre in general. Basically, a sort of behavioural thing aiming to help children with autistic spectrum disorders with their language skills and their recognition of facial expression. This is a study with 14 autistic kids enrolled in a systematic implementation of a drama-based social skills intervention known as the Hunter Heartbeat Method, which is created by Kelly Hunter, who is a Royal Shakespeare Company performer. Each session of the Hunter Heartbeat Method begins with the children quietly seated in a circle on the floor making a hello heartbeat by tapping their hand on their chest. This allows them time to adapt to the environment and signifies transition into the session. Facilitators then lead the children through a series of games based on the plot of The Tempest, which focus on skills such as facial emotion recognition, eye contact, motor imitation, effective imitation, and pragmatics of dialogue exchange. Just all the different parts that build up into performing a scene, all done as a much more open game. And it absolutely makes sense that The Tempest is the play that was chosen for this. It's got lots of themes of alienation and isolation. You've got Caliban, who's grown up feeling like a monster. You've got Ariel, who is also inhuman. And these are the sorts of characters which, I know for a fact, autistic people find very easy to relate to. Because of the way, mostly, that the world engages with them as something other and different. And Maggie Mailing, co-author and psychology graduate assistant at Ohio State, says that they get to interact with someone, they enjoy themselves, and they get that intrinsic reinforcement of socialising children with autism who don't always get an experience like that. And it just, she says, it blows me away every time I see how these kids are able to exceed all expectations with their ability to get engaged. I think the most important thing about this is less that this particular thing is making a difference to these kids, but that someone is taking the time to give them an opportunity to engage. I think this is one of the things about being autistic in the world we live in, is 
you quite often find yourself just being shunted off to the side as the weird kid or whatever and just because your interaction with the world doesn't take the expected pattern doesn't make it any less legitimate and these sessions were only held for one hour per week over ten weeks and at the conclusion parents participants everyone noticed a huge impression from the intervention based on just an hour a week and I think the effort that goes into trying to force someone into a system which is clearly not engaging them compared to like you say speaking with them through something which does work through means that they sympathize with and find much more relatable turns out works much better yeah, I mean, a lot of behavioural tra- therapies, it's treated like a full-time job. You're spending eight hours a day being told that you're behaving weird and people aren't going to get it. And I, this seems to be engaging with the kids on their level rather than trying to force them to interact in a neurotypical way. And now, from a play about ancient seas... Ancient seas! Are there ancient seas in The Tempest? I mean, there's a sea and it's kind of set in the past... Good enough. <laughs> but you know how there's that there's that big dinosaur, the big scary dinosaur called Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? The tyrant king lizard. I've heard of it. There's a new king in town. Oh. There's a new king in town, and it's a fish. How how do they get the crown on it? He's grown the crown himself. He's armoured. This is Bothria Lapis Rex, or B Rex for its friends who has been discovered and described by a team of scientists from the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University, Delaware Valley University, Stanford University, and the University of Chicago. And has been identified from fossils first discovered in the year 2000, near Oxy Bay on Ellesmere Island in Nunavut, Canada, which features 370 million year old fossils from the Devonian period. This fish belongs to the group Antiarchy, which are armoured fish. It's a group that no longer exists, sadly, because fish with armour on, that's cool. I'm not sure I'd say sadly when these things grew to an estimated 1.7 metres, or about five and a half foot long. That's as big as Elijah Wood. Or Beyonce Knowles. It's a person-sized fish. Just just think about that. A person-sized fish. A fish the size of Jet Li. With its head covered in bony plates. Although, probably it wasn't that frightening. It sounds frightening as all hell. Because its lifestyle was probably that of a bottom feeder. It's got a downward-facing mouth and a flat bottom. I think they mean flat belly. Which are very similar to fish species today, which spend their whole lives lying on the bottom of stuff, filter-feeding in the mud or chewing on algae. And the armour itself would be a useful defence against whatever would be trying to bite through the top of them. And useful to keep you on the bottom rather than floating up. And quoting from the press release here, Although popular culture tends to think that bigger is better when it comes to these prehistoric beasts, which is probably why you're more familiar with a T-Rex than Procompsognathus, it turns out that size may have done the B-Rex in. All Antiochs are extinct by the end of the Devonian period. We can't know exactly why B. rex went extinct, but large-bodied species are often found to be at higher risk of extinction than small-bodied ones. So Jet Li survives another day. Because he's very small. For a human. And to round off this week with more weird animals, species that survive a hell of a lot more than we'd expect. A new study into naked mole rats 
thinks they might have figured out why they don't seem to feel any pain. And naked mole rats, like you say, are resistant to pretty much everything that life throws at them. They seem to be radio-resistant, they don't develop cancer, they are ruled over by matriarchal colonies, and they just generally keep on going. But a new study in Cell Reports seems to have figured out how they go through life pain-free. And author Gary Lewin says, We think evolution has selected for this tweak just subtly enough, so that the pain signaling becomes non-functional, but not strong enough that it becomes a danger for the animal. This seems to particularly affect in naked mole rats their temperature reception, and particularly perception of temperature when it becomes painful. So the example used in the article is, imagine the sting of entering a hot tub with bad sunburn. For most of us, that would be really very uncomfortable. That would be painful. You'd probably try and get some ice on that because, ow, the naked mole rat wouldn't be bothered. High temperatures and inflammation around sensory neurons causes nerve growth factor molecules to bind to a receptor called TREK-A, which kicks off a cascade of chemical signals that sensitize an ion channel called TRPV1 on the surface of the sensory neuron so that it opens, which results in a sensory nerve firing that tells the brain to register pain. However, in naked mole rats, there is a small change in that TREK-A receptor. And the scientists found that when they swapped out the TRPV1 channels in a mouse for naked mole rat versions, then the heat-related pain occurred just like normal. But if the cell had a common rat TRPV1 and a naked mole rat track A, then the cell couldn't sense any change in temperature. Researchers compared the naked mole rat's track A genes to 26 other mammals and 5 other African mole rat species and discovered that a switch of just one to three amino acids on one section of the receptor make it less sensitive. And when it comes to mutations, one codon or one amino acid out of a whole region, that's actually quite likely. These point mutations can either have barely any effect at all, or they can have big knock-on effects like naked mole rats not being able to feel pain, but also things like sickle cell anemia in humans. And the researchers also believe that this tiny difference is one amino acid, one to three amino acids being swapped out, leading to the dysfunctional trek A receptor, might also explain how the naked mole rats survive without the neurodegeneration found in animals with mutations that completely shut down the NGF signaling associated with pain, and that developing embryos require NGF signaling to develop normal pain signaling systems. So... That one slight alteration you'd think would probably have occurred in something else by now, but if it had, then that fetus would grow up with no pain signaling, and things that can't feel pain tend to not survive very well. This is why when you have things like diabetic neuropathy, people end up losing limbs. Because if you can't feel pain in an extremity when you injure it, you might not notice until it's too late to save it. That's half the risk of leprosy. Exactly. So we've heard about giant fish and tiny rats, and strangely those two things aren't on the top ten American fears, but who knows, maybe things will change by this time next year. Until then, until then we're almost out of time, but let's take a moment to consider the headlines of that when shopping for yourself, you have different criteria than when you are shopping for other people. Because you're not shopping for yourself, so why would you be using the same criteria? And that stronger gun laws are tied to decreased firearm homicides. Who'd have thought? I'd never have imagined. That making it harder to get a gun would mean that less people shoot each other. 
Weird that that is actually a top ten fear, isn't it? If you have any questions or comments, you can find us on Facebook, at Eureka Nerd, or on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast, or send any thoughts our way at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. And that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. gone from those that went extinct hundreds of millions of years ago to those that we don't know how they are still around now or even kind of what they're doing what is the point of a naked roll mat (laughs) (laughs) keeping that for the post show